Today we get the opportunity to begin a new sermon series. Always fun. Don't ever say church isn't fun. This particular sermon series focuses on Christianity and the 21st century. It is a primer or primer on the key points of the Christian faith. Periodically, it's good to revisit these bedrock beliefs which beckon us back to the bosom of God. We begin, as we should, with a look at ourselves. Christianity has a distinct way of viewing human nature. Humans are, according to classic Christian theology, sinners. Just saying that word sinner makes me think I need one of those big floppy Bibles as a prop so I can bring some proper fire and brimstone. This is the Bible belt, after all. Sinners. Sinners all. Understandably, this word sin isn't the most popular word these days. This is true of Christians across the theological spectrum. I remember attending the largest church in Iowa once, back when I worked up there. This particular church is a conservative Lutheran church in West Des Moines, and it feels a lot more like a non-denominational church than a Lutheran one. One thing that struck me about the service was that there was no confession of sin. Now, Martin Luther loved sin, loved talking about it, loved confessing it. Why was a conservative Lutheran church not talking about sin? The answer is simple. People don't like it. Too much sin language, and you drive people away. But in all fairness, there are some good reasons for banishing sin from our liturgical lexicon. And I'm sure you know these reasons well. Talking about sin is so often a tool for judgment. Those who sin, i.e. the bad people, and then there are those who don't sin or who are at least redeemed, i.e. the good people. You over there are sinners. Gay people are sinners. Trans people are sinners. Those who gamble or who watch pornography or who hire sex workers or who do drugs or who visit Las Vegas or New Orleans, those great dens of sin, are sinners. Famously, after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, conservative Christians blamed New Orleans' sin for the destruction that supposedly God hath wrought. Listen to the words of Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham. This is one wicked city, okay? It's known for Mardi Gras, for Satan worship. It's known for sex perversion. It's known for every type of drugs and alcohol and the orgies and all those things that go on down there in New Orleans. There's been a black spiritual cloud over New Orleans for years. Understandably, comments like these were roundly condemned in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. How dare you judge people in the midst of a great tragedy? Well, they do it because of that word, sin. In addition to being a cause for judging others, sin can lead to extreme and overwhelming guilt. One of the seminarians I worked with at Memorial Church made a side project of researching faith formation in conservative Christian groups. It turns out that as a parent, you can buy shoes for your daughter that have written over the top of them sin on the left foot and nur on the right, so that when your daughter puts her feet together, she is reminded that she is a sinner. I'm not making this up. And if you really want to get into sin and the feelings of soul-destroying guilt that it can create, you should read early 19th century conversion narratives. And I'm sure this is a common pastime for you. And if you do get the chance to do this, you'll find descriptions of overwhelming guilt and perceived sinfulness that are so intense that they literally lead to a point of mental breakdown. Reading these accounts can make you shudder. Perhaps what angers me the most about sin is how certain churches use sin as a means of control. 
This was one charge leveled against the old Roman Catholic Church. They would build up guilt and sin and then say the only means of relieving that guilt and sin was through the church. In the pre-Vatican II world, Catholics were expected to go to confession every week before their weekly, before their weekly communion. Every week, you had to list out, one by one, all your sins. And if you had trouble coming up with them, the priest was there to help prod your soul-searching. At its worst, this could create a cycle where someone was perpetually obsessed with whether or not every action or thought was sinful. When I lived in Iowa, I thought the large Southern Baptist church in town did much the same thing with its large college ministry. They drilled into the minds of their students that sex outside of marriage and even masturbation was sinful. As most 18 to 22-year-old college students think about sex a lot, this put immense pressure on these churchgoers to get married as early as possible to rid themselves of their guilt. God was perpetually on their minds, not as a way to lead to more love or compassion, but as the eternal judge. So yeah, those are just a few of the reasons why sin language is problematic for Christians. It can lead to judgment of others, guilt, self-loathing, and control, none of which are Christian values. So the obvious response is to ditch the language of sin altogether. Toss it out. Who needs it? Let's focus instead on God's loving and life-giving presence in our lives. I have to admit, there is a lot to be said for that. And yet, do we live in a sin-free world? When I look around the world and in our own nation, I see suffering, real suffering. I see examples of injustice, and yes, even examples of evil. What are we to do about that? How do we make sense of it? Let's take greed, avarice. There are people out there who are actively trying to con elderly people out of their life savings. I'm sure you've seen it. It comes in the form of those fake emails that purport to be someone in dire need of help if you only wire a certain amount of money. There are the emails from people who claim they will give you money if only you hand over your login information or other sensitive information that then they can use to steal money from you. There are contractors who intentionally do shoddy work because they know they can get away with it. In the lead-up to the 2008 financial crisis, there were people all over the country who knowingly sold mortgages to people whom they knew could not repay the loans. They knew these people would lose their houses, among other things, and they sold them those mortgages anyway because it wasn't their responsibility, or so they claimed. In 1998, there were financiers who crashed the Thai bot, the Thai currency, which led to widespread economic calamity and suffering in Southeast Asia. All to make a buck. Before Enron collapsed in 2001, Enron energy traders ordered Enron-controlled power plants in California intentionally to shut down, to drive up the price of energy up in that to drive the price of energy up in that state, and then they traded on that knowledge to send the price of electricity even higher there. These traders made a lot of money and bankrupted people all over California in the process. There are bad actors out there who intentionally create suffering on a small scale and large scale out of greed. What do we do about this? What do we call it? In the late 19th century, liberal Christians increasingly called for the elimination of sin from Christian theology. Sin was bad. Then World War I happened. In that war, over 15 million people died, and for what? These were the most advanced countries in the world, the most highly educated. World War I destroyed so many lives and gained nothing for our world. What do we make of that? 
There is a reason why the language of sin be- began to return to liberal Christian circles after World War I. Christians were trying to make sense of what happened in theological terms. Then you have examples of tyrants like Stalin, Pol Pot, Assad, Saddam Hussein. You have people driven by hatred like Adolf Hitler and the hundreds of thousands who followed him. You have people like Lieutenant William Calley and the Mylai Massacre. If sin doesn't exist, how do we explain these things? Then there are our own faults and failings. We are not perfect people. None of us are. We lash out in anger, even anger against those we love. We are driven by materialism. Lust can cause harm to people. We do not always listen to the better angels of our nature. Why? How do we make sense of this theologically? There is a real danger when we strip the language of sin from our vocabulary. Not only does it fail to explain the world around us, but it can lead us to be blind to our own faults and narrow way of seeing things. In a world without sin, we are always right. We're never in the wrong. Think of the damage and harm that can cause to ourselves and others. The fact is that we need the language of sin. It's important, even crucial. The question is not whether sin exists. It's how do we talk about it in ways that make sense. Theology, good theology, matters. We have to talk about these things in order to be true to ourselves and our world. So how do we do it? What do we say? At its core, this is a question of human nature. What does it mean to be human? In theological terms, this is known as theological anthropology. The first thing we do, we need to do, is to borrow an insight from the Apostle Paul. Paul gets a bad rap oftentimes, particularly in more liberal progressive circles, and for good reason. Paul was a human being like all of us. He was not perfect and was very much a creature of his time. And yet, Paul does offer us some penetrating insights that can help us in our theological task. When Paul talks about sin, particularly in his letter to the Romans, Paul doesn't dwell on our sins. In other words, Paul doesn't spend time making lists of do's and don'ts. There's not some eternal guidebook that tells us what is right and wrong in all cases and instances. What Paul talks about is sin in the singular. Sin is a force. Sin is the source of that which leads us astray and away from God. That is what our focus must be in determining what is that force or forces that cause harm and suffering. Contemporary theologians have thought deeply about these issues and have much to say that we can learn from. The goal of the Christian life is shalom, wholeness, peace. We desire connection, connection with God and with others. Probably the best-known 20th century framework for sin is Paul Tillich's notion of sin as separation, the loss of connection. Sin is that which which separates us from those around us. And we see this all over society today. Whenever we don't see other people as people, but as categories that limit and confine them, we are subject to sin. That person is a Republican or a Democrat. That can be a descriptive term to indicate how someone tends to vote in elections, but it can also be a term that limits and defines the other person in pejorative ways. The same thing holds true with race, gender, geography, socioeconomic status, among other things. These terms can be descriptive labels, but they can also be terms that prevent us from seeing the other person as a person. They can objectify others and create walls between people. That process of creating an other is the first step towards judgment, ill will, and even hatred. It all comes back to separation, 
It is sin. We can also be separated from people in our lives. We've all had this experience. Someone does something that harms you or offends you. That action leads to a break in the relationship. Emotions emerge from this break. Emotions like anger, resentment, self-judgment. We can find ourselves suffering or not acting as we would like because of these fractures in our close relationships. Now, I want to note that I'm not saying that all distance or boundaries between people are bad. Healthy boundaries and occasional distance are necessary sometimes to prevent true separation. The separation I'm talking about is the fissure in relationships and the breakdown entirely of communication. It's the cutting off. We don't have to be friends with everyone, but we do have to see them as humans and strive to maintain some type of relationship with them. Some of the most harmful effects of separation result from separation within ourselves. Sin is not only separation from others. When we judge ourselves to the point of self-loathing, we are separated from who we are, and that is sin. Historically, this has been particularly present in marginalized communities. Women, people of color, those who are poor, LGBT people have all been at various times taught to hate some aspect of themselves. Women are told that their bodies don't conform to the right ideal, or that their actions don't conform to the construct of being ladylike. Women are told they should know their place, not have strong opinions, not show off their intelligence for fear of being told they are bossy, shrill, or uppity. Black Americans are taught not to appreciate the texture of their hair, or the dark hue of their skin, or certain features. The poor are taught that they are morally deficient because of their poverty. They are to blame because they weren't able to lift themselves up by the bootstraps and overcome the obstacles that poverty places in their path. LGBT people are deviant, less than, against God's plan. These types of characterizations cause immense self-loathing. They are examples of separation. Non-marginalized people experience separation within themselves all the time as well. Somehow you're not good enough, not smart enough, not successful enough, not rich enough, not hardworking enough. Rather than being comfortable with our bodies, with our gifts and talents, and with how we have responded to the inevitable difficulties of life, we turn against ourselves and say that we're not good enough. This separation is what leads to greed and hatred and resentment. I've wondered sometimes what would have happened if Adolf, if Adolf Hitler had gotten into art school when he applied as a young man or if he had found someone who loved him. I can imagine it would have cured so much of his hatred and resentment. Underlying this separation from ourselves and others is our separation from God, the source of love and creativity and peace. A close connection to God can help us so much when we face, life, when we face the trials of life. If we are connected to God, it makes it easier to resist the separation, resist separation in its other forms. But when we are separated from God, when we're all on our own, it makes it all the easier to fall into sin, into separation. While this language of separation is a useful tool to describe the nature of sin, there are other ways that theologians have written about the same concept. Certain process theologians, ecological theologians, and feminist theologians emphasize the web and interconnectedness of all life. Life is connected, all life. What happens to one life affects other lives. Sin occurs when humans refuse to see life as interconnected, 
and instead see life in a dualist framework. Those who, those who see life in a dualist framework make everything about winners and losers, us and them. Life for them is about power over others, not power with others. They are forever creating opponents or false obstacles that they see in their way, instead of seeing those around them as potential allies and the world as full of opportunities. These dualists see the same struggle within their own bodies. They want to control their bodies and their desires, molding them into some invented ideal, rather than seeing their desires as good and wholesome and their bodies as beautiful as God created them. Think of what could happen if we could get over this dualist framework that leads to sin. What would happen if we could see the true interconnectedness of life and then seek to live in harmony? Another constructive way of thinking about sin is human brokenness. Our society so often insists that we're perfect. Social media only reinforces this notion because people usually only post about their great vacations, the loving times with family, the fun nights with friends. The only pictures on social media show them at their best. So when we don't measure up, what do we think of ourselves? What if we're not happy all the time? What if we do struggle with anxiety or depression or addiction? What if our marriages are full of tension or apathy? The reality is that we are broken, some far more than others, but it is a shared human experience. Looking back on life, we all have our failures and disappointments. That is one thing I've always appreciated about Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. The psalmist is so real, so authentic to what he is feeling at the moment. He is in pain. He is suffering. He is broken. So often it is out of our brokenness that we act in ways that we regret. We don't live up to our potential because our brokenness has harmed us. We carry the burdens of past trauma. But think of the power of acknowledging our brokenness. Think of what that can do. This, I believe, is the most important thing that a knowledge of sin can teach us. We need healing. We need wholeness. We need salvation. That is the beginning of the Christian message. It is the foundation upon which all else is built. And that is why I started this sermon series by talking about sin. We need to begin any Christian journey by acknowledging our brokenness, our tendency to fall into dualist thinking, our separation from God, ourselves, and others. When we can acknowledge that, we create space for new life. Without acknowledging that, we can never find healing. This, again, is one of the key insights of Paul's letter to the Romans. We see it in the passage from Romans 2 for today. We can't pass judgment on others because we ourselves are guilty of the same things. We are all sinners. We are all broken. We are all separated. We're not perfect. We do fall short. We are in need of grace and healing. But even in the midst of that, there is hope. That's another reason why I like Psalm 130. Fundamentally, it is a hopeful psalm. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in God's word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. The remainder of this sermon series will be exploring how we find salvation, healing, wholeness in life. So I encourage you to return next week eager to discover what's next. Open yourself up 
and wait for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning.